You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. Um, before we get started, a couple of quick announcements. One is the place to find announcements is on our webpage, redemptionhou.com. You can add the slash today, or you can go to the big red bar at the top that says, uh, hey, follow along with today's text or whatever it says. Anyway, uh, at the top of that page, every week you will find up-to-date announcements, um, ways to get plugged in, kind of goings-on of the church. It's also the simplest place, actually, to fill out one of these Connect cards. Um, If you're new here and want us to know that you exist, want us to pray for you, want us to try to include you in our community, which we um, pretty profoundly value around here, uh, the easiest way to do that is to fill out one of these Connect cards, drop it in the box on the right, or fill out the equivalent thing online. It is um, the way that our pastors will say a prayer for you. We will reach out to you and say, uh, hey, we'd like to get to know you. We will not pester you. We will not show up on your doorstep. We will not sign you up for, uh, I don't know, annoying telemarketers or anything else like that. Um, but if you want to be known here and I want to be known here, uh, the place to start is a Connect card. Um, finally, uh, we don't do giving announcements lots, but if you, like if Redemption is your home, um, I encourage you to give to it just like I do. Help us keep the doors open. Help us like keep doing the important work that we are doing. The place to do that, redemptionhou.com uh, slash give. Okay, um, I'm a little bit like uh, torn between being morose and being like uh, joker wild uh, hyena cackling this week because like the world is so dark. I don't know what to do, but kind of laugh at it. I'm like, the world is so dark this week that I'm like, these are the weekends that redemption was made for. Um, and so, uh, like, that's not funny, but also like, I feel that on a pretty profound level this morning. So before we get started, let, let me, um, let me tell you that I want to deal with some really heavy stuff and also uh, the whole reason that I want to deal with the, ris- with the really he- heavy stuff is because I think there's uh, real, really heavy hope. I think that as terrible as weeks like this are, and they really are, um, the more we ignore them and paint on a smile, the more we undermine our ability to um, understand and buy into like actual, intrinsic, powerful, cosmos-shaping Christian hope, right? The, the more shallow our understanding of the problems of the world, the more shallow our understanding of the hope that we have in Jesus. So I'm gonna do a little bit of a deep dive here into some of the darkness, and maybe we need it. But we're not gonna stay there. We hopefully will get to 
a little bit of why there's some light. But I want to start with the question that I'm asking this week, and maybe you are too. Not, not about the Second Amendment, not about um, why do Christians who in the early centuries were pretty sure that you couldn't be both saved and a soldier. I'm not saying that I believe that. I'm not saying that we should say that. I'm saying that this was the overwhelming conclusion for the first several centuries of the church was they were writing like to their church leaders like, can you really be both a Christian and in the military? They were so anti-violence and so pro the way of peace that they could not get their minds around any other way. And, And it's wild that now like the basic default in America is Christians and guns like peas and carrots. But that's not really my question. I I have my answers and my solutions and my opinions and convictions there. But my questions aren't what do we do politically? What do, who do we vote for? How do we how do we do this? I I have some real cynicism and some real questions. But my much more profound question is uh, perhaps scarier, perhaps darker, perhaps the kind of question that some of you have, perhaps the kind of question that some of you haven't allowed yourself to have, and perhaps the kind of question that we think pastors and churches can't or certainly shouldn't ask. I keep thinking about these 78 minutes that the kids were in the classroom and, and all the calls, the kids asking for somebody to come help them. And you keep asking, where is the help? Where is the help? 78 minutes. Well, me being a pastor, devoting my life to the concept of the God of love, devoting my life, trying to urge you all that we are deeply and truly and profoundly beloved, where my mind goes for those 78 minutes of those repeated calls is, why did God not answer them? Not just, why didn't 911 not help? But God, where are you? when our children scream for you. Really, where are you? Now, I wanna ask this question because I think there's hope on the back end, right? I don't wanna just like leave depressed. But I also wanna ask this question because I think this is a real and important question. I think it's important for a number of reasons, not the least of which, you know what God called his people in the Old Testament? Not a trick question. He called his people Israel, a name he gave them. And he called them Israel, which means he wrestles with God. God named his people, my people are the ones who wrestle with me. And yet sometimes we feel this like implicit and explicit pressure of you better not ever ask a question of God like that. 
No, no, no. If, if God is real, if God is true, if God is there, if God is active and actual and loving like he claims to be, then certainly he can handle our darkness. Certainly he cares about our profound and deep darkness, right? But I know that theologically we have all sorts of things that we've heard. Like as I kind of rattled off, like well, if, if, if I'm going to ask 78 minutes, where are you, God? And I get to answer through the lens of like all the things that I've heard in and around churches over the past several decades. I'm gonna hear, well, don't question God. You're not him. I've heard, well, sometimes God's just gonna kill some people. Or I've heard, maybe like Uvalde is just a particularly sinful place. Too many Roman Catholics or something. They don't believe the gospel, right? Or I've, I, like this one even a little sickens me to say, but didn't the kids deserve even worse than this as objects of God's eternal wrath? which there's like clear and profound teaching from very influential theologians in the modern 2022 American church who basically take this position. It should have been, not just it could have been, but it should have been according to the laws of sin and wrath, it should have been much worse. Or maybe we excuse it. Maybe we say, well, maybe somebody heard the gospel because of it. Won't all this be worth it then? I think there's these like terrible theological takes and maybe you've heard these and maybe you partially believe these, but I think for the vast majority of us that are here at Redemption, um, y'all don't think that. But I think that many around us think basically, well, yeah, it's death, but like, isn't there like a refresh of death? Hasn't like death been through a radical rebranding? A kindler, gentler death, death 2.0, new and improved. Because our gracious God, didn't they at least all go to heaven? Honestly, I think for most of us that are sitting in the auditorium, as we ask 78 minutes, really, God? I think we, unfortunately, are probably a cynical bunch and just say, I don't know, God must not care. I I don't know. I just don't know what to make of it. I think that's a relatively healthy place to start because I I think that this at least acknowledges the badness of the situation. The, The brutality of the situation makes it really hard for us to explain away the darkness of it the way that we explain away the darkness of just about everything else in the world. And because of that, it's a little bit helpful. It's a little bit useful, as gross as that feels to say. Here's what I want to do. is I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 5. I know the text graphic thing we've been putting up on social media um, has said this is a six-week series in Genesis 1 two, and three, um, and instead we're going to be in Genesis five this morning. Here's what I really want to do is 
for all the past five weeks as we've been looking at the very beginnings of the scriptures and how important they are for us theologically, really what I want to do this morning is show how an awareness and an understanding of the early chapters of Genesis colors our understanding of the whole New Testament. I'm going to take you and spend a bunch of time in John chapter 20, and then I'm going to return and say, hey, actually this colors the way we process uh, the the brutality of the darkness around us. Right, so the way that we answer this 78 minutes really question is going to be informed in a significant way by reading Genesis on its own terms. Okay, so Jordan read this passage here at the beginning of the service for us, um, but let me just read one more time Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is the whole chapter. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Y'all remember that Adam is the Hebrew word for human. When we see man or humanity or human, it's the Hebrew word Adam. When we see Adam, it's the Hebrew word Adam, right? But, but sometimes our English translations smudge some things together in really unhelpful ways uh, that make us really confused on a whole host of things. But Uh, So I've actually got up in here some brackets to try to clarify some of that. Um, This is the beginning of the, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created Adam, the the human, he created him in the likeness of God. Remember, this is what we, what we saw starting in chapter one of uh, God has made us in his own image. He's given us like the business of building and co-creating the cosmos together with him. He's made us equity stakeholders. We are humans in his image. Verse two, he created them, the Adam, male and female, and he blessed them and named them Adam in the day when they were created. Like the crazy thing about the early chapters of Genesis is it says women used to be humans. Uh, like I'm, th- that's sort of tongue in cheek, but, but that's that like originally they, they were Adam, they were the human, and then it's only the other human that renames them and says, no, 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 she's not really human, she's Eve. Because like th- there is nobody in the Garden of, e- of Eden named Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, there's male and female, there's Ish and Isha, and they together are the Adam. Th- they are together human. And then afterwards, we have one that retains the title human and the other one that gets named by the human like a common beast as Eve. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them Adam. Now, the reason that I rehearse this and repeat this, and I've said this many times throughout this series, is once again, this is here again in the text. It's in chapter one. It's in chapter two. It's in chapter five. It's in parts of chapter three. Like, this, this seems to be one of the major emphases, and I want you to feel that this is one of the major emphases of the text. Despite what we've heard Genesis teaches about God's design for humanity, when we go back and look, at the text, it's often much different from what we have concluded naively. Now, I make this point because one of our naive conclusions about the world is death is natural. But do you remember when God places the Ish and Isha in the garden? He gives them the fruit from every tree and says, you will really feast on this and eat and know me. Just don't eat from this one. The, the warning is because in the day that you eat of it, you will die dead. You will really and truly and fully and immediately die. 
And then they do, and then there's the curse and all the rest. And then one of their children kills another one of their children. Cain kills Abel. And then on the heels of that, we come to this in Genesis chapter 5. When Adam, the human, had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, there's a note of grace here because God originally says, in the day that you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will die dead on that day. And instead of dying dead on that day, apparently he gets 930 years. Right? Hundreds of thousands of more days. The day that you eat of it, you will die dead. No, 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 never mind. I'll give you hundreds of thousands of days of grace, and then you will actually die dead. And yet there is a note of finality and bleakness here in the text that we should feel and hear with our hearts and souls This human whom God created in his own image is now no longer alive. The one that God scooped personally up out of the ground and formed into clay and breathed his breath into his own nostrils, then he died. And I think we come past passages like this and we're like, oh yeah, he died, like, but he was really old. Like, isn't that kind of like normal and no big deal? Isn't that just the course of events? And it's not the course of events. It's not right. It's not good. It's not natural. It's not what is supposed to happen. You may have questions about biology and all sorts of things like that. Uh, like, uh, I, I get that. Um, we can talk a little more nerdy stuff uh, offline, but I don't want to get too distracted from the major point in this text being the brutality of death. And really, I'm going to read you a bunch more passages. We're going to read um, about uh, eight or nine more sets of folks, and every one of them has the same format. They're going to be born. They're going to father some sons and daughters. They're going to live way more years than any human has ever uh, apparently lived. Questions about the numbers, and there's actually some ancient Near Eastern texts and parallels here that are important, but we're not going there this morning. What I want you to see on all of these is this brutal statement of then he died. Humanity lost, and God lost, and things were desperately, unrelentingly broken. Verse 6, Seth, Adam's son, lived 105 years, and he became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh, verse 9, lived 90 years, became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. 
Kenan lived 70 years, and he became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years, and he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years, became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch apparently didn't die. Well, there's more not going into that. Cruise past that. Verse 25. We got way too much to get to this morning. Sorry. Uh, Verse 25. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work, from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. So he's referring back to Genesis 3 and the fall and the curse and saying, Finally, we're going to get relief. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he had become the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that's the end of Genesis chapter 5. Here's my whole point. Eight times, over and over and over, Genesis emphasizes and puts directly in our face, he died, and 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 he died. There's no escaping the problem of the cosmos. Now, my basic contention is most of us read Genesis chapter 5, and these verses don't stick out to us because we're like, yeah, that's what happened. And because of the great rebranding that Christians have done on behalf of death, as if death is our friend, as if death is Jesus' co-conspirator, as if they're partners on the same team. Like, well, yeah, sometimes God just needs to, it's just time and God's going God's to gonna end you. Because we haven't read the story in its own context, heard the bad part of the story, and then seen them say, here is the warning, you are going to die. And then they die and die and die and die and die and die and die. And we're like, oof, oof, oof. Gut punch after gut punch after gut punch. And we've become so acclimated that we miss the fact that Genesis is trying to say, this is not right. This is not okay. I want to come back to this larger point, right? Death is not okay. Death is not your friend, and death is not Jesus' friend. 
Seems a little obvious when I say it that way, right? Like the whole thing that we believe about Jesus is that he defeated death. The whole thing that we believe about Jesus is that he was resurrected, that he got up. Doesn't seem like they were ever friends. And yet somehow, because we've misread Genesis, we've also misread much of the New Testament. So here's what I want to do is I want to walk you through um, relatively quickly um, John chapter 20, which is one of the most beautiful and captivating and happy passages in the New Testament, which I need this morning, and I think you do too. So we're not going to put the text on the screen, um, but, but I'm not like, go and read it. I'm just going to try to move too fast for them to keep up. Um, Pick any translation you want. There's a variety of translations in front of you. You don't have to read right now in a physical Bible or even on an electronic one. You can just listen, but I'm telling you, all I'm going to do for the next couple of minutes is show you how John chapter 20 relies very significantly on these early chapters of Genesis that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks. And my whole thing is you read and see and understand John different because of Genesis. And because of that, maybe we can understand the 78 minutes question different as well. Does that kind of make sense? All right. Okay, see, I remember the first words of Genesis chapter one are, in the beginning... Now, Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth, uh, the heavens and the earth. John, in his gospel, this is John 1, 1, starts similarly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, repeating this phrase intentionally. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart him, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So here's my point. The gospel of John is intentionally and repeatedly alluding to Genesis chapter one. Now, this is interesting in and of itself, but really what I want to suggest is it does not stop here. It just builds from here. Remember, Genesis starts in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, And then Genesis starts telling us what happens on the next several days of the week. And it says, on the first day, God separated the light from the darkness, and there was evening, and there was morning. There was evening, and there was morning on the first day. On the second day, God separated the earth from the sky. He separated land from waters, and there was evening, and there was morning on a second day. And so on third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, y'all remember what happens on the seventh day? Nothing. God rests. So it's interesting that John, having started his book with the phrase, in the beginning, talking about creation, saying that all of creation is due to Jesus, then in John chapter 12 says, let me tell you about the most important six days of Jesus' life, and then proceeds to give us a chronological view of day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, and you know what happens on day six? Jesus hangs on a cross and declares, it's finished. Then you know what happens on day seven? Jesus is in the grave. Kind of resting, I suppose. So then we come to this resurrection text, and in John chapter 20, verse one, John says, now, on the first day of the week, 
right? I'm I'm shouting because he is literally shouting at us. On the first day of the week, in the beginning, the creator, let me tell you about his actual seven days of creation. He was here in Jerusalem and he was here and he was here and he came to the temple and then he was rejected and then he said it was finished and then he, re- and then he rested and now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. Now, what John is doing here is he's starting out a theme that becomes so important for the early church that they start talking about the eighth day, the eighth day, the eighth day over and over and over, which is the concept of new creation. It's creation 2.0. It's creation again. Now, on the first day, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb very early in the morning while it was still dark, right? So we see some illusions again. Now there's morning and there was evening the first day, as Genesis 1 tells us. Now on the morning of the first day, before dark had been separated from light, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been taken away. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who we think is John, who's writing this. And Mary said to them, they've taken our Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they went to the tomb and they didn't see anything and then they left. A couple verses later in verse 11, Mary is standing weeping outside the tomb and as she's weeping, she stoops and looks in the tomb and she sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head of Jesus or at the head and one at the foot and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. And so Jesus, who she doesn't yet recognize, says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener. Wait, I think I've heard something about a garden before having to do with creation. Supposing him to be the gardener. How right she was. She says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, finally recognizing him, Rabbani, which means teacher. And then Jesus sends her, he says, hey, you got to go tell all of my brothers where I'm going. And then in the evening of the first day of the week, John emphasizing morning and evening of the first day of the week. On the first day of the week in the morning. On the first day of the week in the evening. This is verse 19. He's he's intentionally alluding back to the creation narrative. On the evening of the first day of the week. On the evening of that day. The first day of the week. In case you don't know what I'm doing here. In case somehow you've missed all of this. On that day. The first day of the week. When the doors were locked where the disciples were because they were so afraid, I seem to remember somebody else trying to hide because of fear. Maybe in a garden? First day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were because of the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. 
like the Lord walked among Adam and Eve in the garden. And he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Seems like an understatement. (laughs) But Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. You remember how God creates the Adam in the first place? He forms it and he breathes his own spirit of life into them and it becomes a living being. At first breath, Adam becomes a living being. And Jesus here with all of these illusions, morning and evening and first day and garden and running and hiding because of fear, all of a sudden he is breathing into the nostrils of his brothers and sisters. Receive the Holy Spirit. Quote, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven to them. If you withhold forgiveness, from any, it is withheld from them. So after breathing in and reconstituting and beginning a new creation of a new kind of humanity, he commissions them as equity partners saying, hey, what you do, I do. You forgive, I forgive. You don't forgive, I don't forgive. Like you are an equity stakeholder, an actual partner in this endeavor. And we are like, oh my word, this is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Once again, oh wow. This is new creation. This is what Paul means when he says that there's new creation. John's doing the same thing as Genesis, right? He starts within the beginning. He's explicit to tell us about the six days before the Passover. On the sixth day, there's a cross where Jesus proclaims it's finished. Um, They rest on the seventh day. Then there's the first day of the week. Then there's maybe a gardener. Then there's morning and also evening. Then there's hiding and fear. Then there's God showing up in their midst anyway. Then there's God breathing into their nostrils saying, receive my very own breath, my very own spirit. And then he commissions them and creates them and recreates them for equity partnership. Okay. Here's, here's the, the point. Let me kind of draw some of this together for us. The gospel of Jesus has to do with new creation. The gospel of Jesus has to do with material reality. The gospel of Jesus has to do with the fact that we need an intrinsic salvation. We don't need to be rescued from this world. We don't need to be snatched out of our material bodies or this physical suffering. We do not need to rebrand death and only look at it in a different perspective and say, well, it could always be worse. Well, think about it this way. There's always someone on the face of the earth who's had a worse day than you have. Praise Jesus, right? This this is not Christianity. This is not the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus starts with the intrinsicality of the brokenness of the world. That our sin is not some arbitrary thing that God is holding over our heads. 
saying, hey, I have this arbitrary thing against you, and one day I will destroy you. And we're like, well, then he destroyed them that day, and then he destroyed them as if they were divorced. So I'm using the word intrinsic over and over and over. Something that's extrinsic is arbitrary. Like there's an action and there's an extrinsic action that responds to that action. All I'm saying is that they are more deeply interwoven together than that. Our sin, our brokenness, our predicament, our problem, our situation in the world is deeper than maybe we have realized because we've tried to pretend that the problem isn't the problem. But looking back at Genesis itself, it tells us that the problem is actually the problem. It's not just that we lust in our hearts after our neighbor's wives, although, of course, that is a problem. It's not just that we say some dirty words every now and then. It's not just that we're not like giving enough to the poor, although that's also a profound problem. It's not just any of these things. The problem with the cosmos and with you and me is that we're dying. We're rotting. And all of our rage, all of our turning about, all of our self-deluded insistence that we can change this somehow only ends up speeding up the process of death for the people around us as we steal resources from them or anger them or exert our own rage on them. It's not that nothing ever extends our lives. Of course it does, and thank God that that happens. But the problem that we need to be rescued from is so big that many of us have forgotten that it was a problem. And yet the only problem that the New Testament thinks it's rescuing us from, the power of sin, the power of Satan, the power of death, the last enemy to be defeated is death, we've given away as if it weren't really a central part of the gospel. And then we come back here and we're like, oh wow, like he's actually starting this over again. He is, wait, so, so you're saying the gospel is that God is fixing creation. I was pretty sure he was like done with this creation. He's, he's fixing it? Like it's new creation, but it's not, it's not new. Like it's new, but but it's still the same one? I, th- I thought he was just going to like burn it and get rid of it all and we we're going to go be angels disembodied in the presence of God forever and ever. Now, th- this seems like kind of a, uh, a, a, just an intellectual thing. Like it's just, oh, theology. And we can argue about theology. He- he- here's the reality. This theology matters because this theology changes the way we understand those 78 minutes. This theology changes whether you think this world is important or not. This theology changes the way you do your job. You're just like, make the world go round job. This theology changes whether you become an equity stakeholder in this history, the only history that there is. When when John's saying there's new creation, he's not saying there's going to be no more timber side. This street right up here, for those of you who missed that. He's not saying there's going to be no more Timberside. He's saying there's going to be a new remade Timberside. What are y'all doing on Timberside Redemption Church? Now, here's, here's how this helps me with the question of the 78 minutes. Sometimes we refer to this as the problem of evil or the problem of suffering or the problem of pain or some such thing. They're all kind of related here. 
This grand narrative of Christian history, this meta-narrative, this statement that, hey, the problem is Satan, sin, and death, therefore the solution has to conquer not just Satan, not just sin, but also death, right? This, this framing of the Christian meta-narrative is central to the gospel. It is the thing that the people at Nicaea would have like gone to fisticuffs with you over and we've thrown it out the window like, ah, it's not really important, who cares? The problem is as we have thrown that out, we have forgotten how to deal with things like the problem of evil. Now, I don't have per se a uh, solution to the problem of evil, but understanding this grand narrative changes our perspective in a significant way. Not just always look on the bright side of life. This meta-narrative reminds us that death is not God's partner. It reminds us that as profoundly and rawly as we weep, our God also weeps. We saw it in the person of Jesus. He literally wept over his friend's death and then also his own. Death is not God's partner. God is not indifferent to death. Somehow God is in control, but not yet fully so. We could do more here, but let this sink in for just a minute. God is in control, and also God is not in control. He's in control in a grand sense, but he has not yet seized permanent full control of this cosmos, which is why the darkness persists. And the thing that I suppose helps me the most is that this meta-narrative insists that life is really coming Life is coming, not rebranded death, but actual life, breath in the lungs, firing in the brain, blood in the veins, movement in the joints, and smiles on the faces, and laughter in the air. Life is coming again, even for our beloved and lost too soon children. New creation is beginning. God isn't indifferent. He's not standing off. He's not just scoffing at us saying, suck it up. This is the way that the world is. God is in this and fixing this and claiming this and changing this. And although we don't understand every detail and we definitely don't understand the timeline, new creation is our promise. Resurrection is our promise. Let me end with this. This concept of new creation that we get by actually looking at the brokenness of creation in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 5, as we've done over the last several weeks, also 4, but we didn't touch that. Um, This concept of, of brokenness informs our concept of hope. But without an adequate, robust, real concept of hope, We are hopeless. Without real hope, if all we ever have is false hope, if all we ever have is optimism, if all we ever have is the power of positive thinking, then we have no actual hope. But if if John's illusions are true, if what John is saying is 
God is taking back control over creation. He's taking charge once again, replacing death with life, bringing, breathing his own spirit of breath and life and joy and love into our very own lungs. If John is right, then that hope is not empty hope. That is real expectation. That is hope that everything really will be okay. Not just because our politicians get it together. Not just because we figure out how to get around big money in politics. Not just because we move to different countries where this doesn't happen. Not just because of any of these other potential solutions, although God, I hope we take them. Real hope is coming regardless of what we do. Real hope is actually beginning. This real hope of new creation is actually tangibly, intrinsically beginning in our inner beings. Right, so if sin is intrinsic, so much so that sin causes death and then everyone dies. You don't know how pervasive and powerful and real sin is? Death. The intrinsicality of sin is far surpassed by the intrinsicality of the new creation of our God who has permanently bonded himself with us and said, you might die, but you can never really die. Because I live, you also will live. Behold, I was dead and now I'm alive and now I hold the keys of death and Hades, the new creation that is beginning in our hearts and souls and inner beings that we have little glimpses of. That new creation is so intrinsically powerful that though it begins within us and among us, it will not stop there. It will swallow the cosmos. Hope is actually coming. So as we sing as we pray, as we worship. Let us pray that our rage isn't the only solution. Let us pray that our ingenuity isn't the only solution. Keep your righteous rage. Keep your ingenuity. And yet our hope, our powerful hope, our sure hope, our hope that no one can take from us is that new creation has already begun and new creation cannot be stopped. Let's pray. God, I need some hope. God, we need some hope. God, will you do something within us and among us? And God, much more, frankly, will you do something beyond us and outside of us and fix this broken world? Would you fix our violence and our rage and our hatred and our suspicion and our alienation and our domination and our quest for money and our 
excusing of the trampling of the poor, would you help us with all of this? God, we want to repent of being people who don't have hope, who don't live in new creation, who don't experience new creation, who don't share new creation with the people around us. God, we need you in power, in reality, in intrinsicality. Be with us, even in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.